Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 31 through 37. As you turn there, a lot has uh, happened in the news lately that are sort of what you might call wow moments. It seems like I get up each morning and I go to the internet and I look up what's happened the night before, and the only thing you can sort of say is, wow, that happened, this turn, that turn, the political scene, all the things that we see, uh, maybe the Cubs, if you're a sports fan, uh, a lot of wow moments that have certainly happened in the news lately. But the Bible, if we're paying close attention, provides for us the greatest wow moments. We're going to see that this morning. Whether it's sports or politics, as important as those things might be in the lives of people, they're not eternal. And what we are going to be gathering around this morning, our eyes are going to be setting, we're going to be setting our eyes upon a text this morning that is the Word of God. The Word of God being eternal, truthful, it's going to be the same irregardless of whether it's wins and losses on the athletic field or wins and losses in political elections. This isn't going to change. It's not going to change Wednesday morning. It's not going to change tomorrow morning. It's not going to change forever. Now consider uh, for a moment with me. I don't know if you uh, follow baseball, but if you don't, let me tell you that the Cubs won the World Series. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, the Cubs haven't won the World Series for 108 years. And if you go back 108 years, that's Teddy Roosevelt. He's, and he's the president. There's not TV yet. So last time the Cubs played in the World Series, they weren't on the television. They didn't have that. And so on Tuesday night, the Cubs won the World Series. And I remember telling a friend of mine uh, at the bottom of the eighth inning, oh, the Cubs got this It's 6-3. to three. Got up the next morning, wow, Cubs almost lost. Eight to seven, had to go to 10 innings. It's quite interesting. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Now consider for a moment the astonishment that would have flooded your mind if you had been reading a book all of your life for the last 50, 60 years, whatever it might be. And that book had predicted that the Cubs would win the World Series in 2016, or maybe that book had predicted who would win the election Tuesday evening. Well, this morning's passage in Mark finds us in the midst of a people who have just witnessed an event foretold not 108 years ago, but 700 plus years before. For our scripture reading this morning, Christopher read for us from Isaiah 35. This passage in Mark 7, fulfills what has been proclaimed, foretold in Isaiah 35, 700 plus years before Christ was to come. And so you could understand why in verse 37 of Mark 7 this morning, it says that they were astonished beyond measure, or they were struck with astonishment. What they had believed and read about for years had just come true. What grand granddad had told them around the table and his great granddad had told them hit him around the table had just come true. So this isn't some sort of light passage. Brothers and sisters, this morning, this passage stands not only as an encouragement to us, but as a reminder of the eternality of Christ, our King. That from the beginning, Colossians tells us 
From the beginning, Christ is the architect and the builder of all creation, including thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. The creation that, according to Genesis 1, God said was good, stands as evidence that Christ does all things well and has done all things well from the beginning of time and is still doing all things well now. From the saving of his people Israel from Egypt to the working of grace in an imperfect lineage to Joseph and Mary to the finished work on the cross, Christ does all things well. Our King, Christ, is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, even now ruling and reigning, and ruling and reigning well. And his rule and reign, that is well, will not change forever. All things are well in Christ, or as the title of the sermon is, he does all things well. Because this Christ that we will read here in Mark 7 is not now some page in a historical book and it's sort of old news. This Christ is ruling and reigning. He's, he's not in the grave any longer and he's not on the cross any longer. He's seated at the right hand of the Father even now, doing all things well. Now I mentioned this morning in our announcement time that this passage here in Mark 7 is really a doxology. There's many doxologies in Scripture. You can go to the end of Jude or many of Paul's epistles and find sort of this recap, this exclamation of delight of what God has done. And here, in the end of Mark 7, we sort of get this doxology, a crescendo, if you will, that begins all the way back in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bible open, which I hope you do, just flip back one or two pages and you're going to see Mark 6 verse 30. This is the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Now we will note more about this next week, but you will note that in verse 30 of Mark 6, Mark feeds, uh, Christ feeds the 5,000. Now, if you take your Bible and flip back over to Mark 7, look at the first couple verses of Mark chapter 8. Mark tells us that Christ feeds the 4,000. This isn't some sort of accident, the way this is set up. We note that Mark writes in cycles. He sort of writes in this circle. And so as he comes around the circle and he goes back over and starts to circle again, he sort of catches something that had already happened. Mark's not writing some sort of um, documentary here. He's writing in a way that is to help us understand who Christ is and to convince us with as much uh, ability as he has in his pen that we should believe in this Christ and what he has done and who he is. And the cycle begins again. So if you see the Mark 6 verse 30 begins this, the cycle begins again in Mark chapter 8, feeding the 4,000. You see the doxology, as I've just told us here at the end of Mark 7, Look one page over in Mark 8. You see the cycle complete with another doxology. Again, we'll get into this in a couple weeks. But look at the crescendo that comes around again halfway through Mark 8, which, interestingly enough, is halfway through the entire book of Mark when Peter confesses all the way in verse 29, you are the Christ. We're getting to this point in the book where everything's going to change. The ministry of Christ 
to the Jews is almost completely over. He's ministering to the Gentiles uh, for the most part. And here in Mark 8, he is going to really shift all of his ministry away from the Jews, from the Gentiles, and just to the disciples. And right before he does that, Mark, yet again, is seeking to convey the glory of this Christ. He's seeking to convey, not in his writing, some sort of chronological tale of Christ, but persuade us yet again that Christ is the Son of God and that we are to believe upon him for salvation. I'm going to read for us Mark 7, 31 through 37. Follow along with me as I read. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Apaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. The account here of this man who, has a, who is deaf and has a speech impediment is only recorded by the Gospel of Mark. You're not going to find this if you go over to Matthew or Luke or John. You won't find this particular account. It's given for a reason, and I think the particular reason is found in verse 37, to once again proclaim that he has done all things well. We noted a bit last week that this particular section, really 24 all the way through the end of the chapter, marks an immense amount of travel for Christ. Christ is ministering to the Gentiles in 24 through 30. He travels from the Sea of Galilee on the west side all the way up to Tyre. Sidon is another 20 miles north of Tyre. And then after this passage, he's going to go all the way down to, uh, excuse me, in 31, he's going to go all the way down to the Decapolis, which is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know how far this was because of the different routes he could have traveled, but there seems to be some indication that he was actually there for quite a bit of time, maybe as long as eight months. This travel could have been as long as a couple hundred miles of walking. But here in the Decapolis, here in verse 31, we aren't sure if the man he's going to minister to is of Jewish or Gentile descent. The Decapolis region was populated by many Gentiles, but also had large amounts of Jews in nearly all of the cities in this region of the Decapolis. Decapolis, Deca, meaning ten, ten prominent cities. You notice that he, he gets to this area, this region, whatever it is, and they, whoever they are, verse 32, bring to, a, bring to him a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, we don't know uh, much about this man. There seems to be some indication that he had not been deaf his entire life. Because if you're deaf from birth, you have no ability to learn how to speak. And yet he had some sort of impairment to his speech. He, he wasn't mute. He could talk, but it was greatly impaired. So there seems to be some indication that he may have had some sort of disease or something that eventually takes his ability to hear. 
And so whoever these people are, they bring him to Christ and they beg him to lay his hand on them. Now, we don't know whether they were interested in just having Christ bless them or to heal them. That was sort of the thing you might do at that time. You would bring someone who needs something, a a healing, a blessing. You'd bring them to a rabbi, a teacher, and you'd ask them to lay their hand upon that particular person. But it seems to have to be some indication that they were expecting maybe more of a blessing than an actual healing because of how they uh, reacted in verse 37. Now notice this man has this speech impediment. He has what would be called a stammering tongue. He had a, a difficulty being able to speak. Now I'm going to give you the Greek word for that. I'm going to go a little bit on the theologian side for just a second, but stick with me. I think you'll you'll see the importance of it. This Greek word for speech impediment is magilalos. Magilalos. Now, what's so interesting about that? I don't know Greek. You probably don't know Greek, but there are a few very interesting things about this word, magilalos. For starters, verse 32 is the only passage in the entire New Testament where magilalos is used. There's no other passage. This is the only place. And so if you're studying, particularly if you're studying like I have been this week to preach this passage, that immediately makes me go, why? That's awfully interesting. Magila lost, that's the only place in all of the New Testament. That's the only place in all of the Greek Bible that we see that, the New Testament. But if you're to pull up the Septuagint, well, what is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, that's been translated into Greek. So you can actually go back and look up Greek words as they're translated out of the Hebrew and the Old Testament. Well, if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, translated into Greek, the Septuagint, you will find Magilalos in only one place. Any guesses? Isaiah 35. That's the place. That's the only place you're going to find Magilalos. Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, Magilalos, sing for joy. when When a pastor finds that, it sort of makes a reformed pastor go a bit Pentecostal. You know, a little amening going on, hallelujah, going, this is incredible. Just the fact that God has orchestrated his word to connect things 700 years apart. This isn't an accident. This word isn't something, oh, hey, that's a pretty good Bible. Maybe we should read it and it's got some good ideas about life. No, this is the word of God. God has put this together. He knew what Isaiah was going to foretell in Isaiah 35 was going to come all the way in Mark chapter 7. Mark, the writer here, through Peter, knowing this is a fulfillment. Let's use the same word, Magilalos. Two things I want you to notice about the friends of this deaf and speech-impaired man in verse 32. Two things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to notice they, and they, brought to him a man. Well, Like I've said, we don't know who they are. And I think that's exactly the point that we should take from it. They aren't really anybody of that great importance. They're the anonymous people of the Bible. They're the people that God knows and is working through, but don't have a great role. Their name is not here. And in many ways, this is the church. We're a bunch of they's. 
Just seeking to proclaim the good news, take people to the gospel, proclaim the wonder and goodness of Christ. We're just a bunch of they's. We really don't have a a bunch of names. If Christ tarries and we're a thousand years down the road, you're not going to look up and say, hey, Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship. We're just going to be a bunch of they's. And that's okay because God knows who we are. And God is using us. And he actually delights to use the they's. So whatever your your simple ministry may be, are we looking for a name recognition? Are we looking just to be faithful? That's what these people were. They were just simply faithful. They were mentioned twice in verse 32, and then that's it. They brought him to a man, and they begged him. That's the second thing I want you to see in verse 32. They begged him. Again here, application of intercessory prayer. These people begging for their friend. Notice the friend doesn't come to Christ. The friend, somehow his friends come to Christ. They intercede on the behalf of this man who is deaf and speech impaired. We spoke a little bit about that last Wednesday and last Sunday about intercessory prayer. But really the question I think for us in deeper application is, Do we know one another well enough to know what we need to be interceding for? Do I know what is going on in your life enough to know how I should be interceding for you? And vice versa. And across the aisle, do we know one another well enough to intercede for one another? Do we know one another well enough to know what we need to bring of our lives and one another's lives to Jesus in prayer. That requires that we're going to have to build relationships, close relationships. Verse 33. Verse 33 offers some interesting detail about Christ's encounter with this man. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. After taking him aside from the crowd, in the Greek means to receive him. So Christ is really just sort of taking him toward himself. Taking him to a private area, but really has more of this connotation of, I'm bringing you to me. I'm bringing this man into his presence in order to have a, a, a really what would be an intimate encounter with Christ. Christ engaging this man in a very personal way. And I have no doubt that if uh, we were back in, 70 AD, when Mark had been writing this passage around that time, uh, as original readers of this passage of Scripture in verse 33, we would have uh, not a bit of surprise. We probably wouldn't have any uncertainty about what Mark is trying to teach us. And we certainly would have not taken a lot of time trying to comprehend, okay, is it fingers into the ears? And then, okay, how do you take two fingers and get a little spit and touch it to, I mean, all the workings of that. And people have taken the time. But that's not the main point of this passage at all. So we're not going to get bogged down and did it do this way or this way. All we know is that Christ, which I'll tell us here in a minute, had a very specific purpose for why he was doing this. How, how the order was, I think is important, but not the main point of the passage. So we're not going to spend a bunch of time on it. What I do think is helpful is this. Namely, it seems very clear that Christ is communicating to this man who is unable to hear and speaks in a very impaired way. He's communicating to this man and the only way the man can understand, sign language. 
He, he's communicating, I'm, I'm going to do something to your ears. I'm going to release your tongue. He's also communicating to the disciples and in many ways to us. Communicating the fact that what he's doing to this deaf and speech impaired man is, is really communicating the problem of spiritual blindness, of spiritual deafness, the inability to speak spiritual things unless you first have your ears, your heart opened by Christ to be able to partake of truth. You can't speak it unless you first can hear it. Christ proclaiming to the disciples in many ways, this man is deaf, this man is mute, or speech impaired. But there's a spiritual aspect to this as well. Christ must touch us before we have the ability to speak. Spiritual deafness causes an inability of the tongue to speak as it was meant to speak. James 3.6 tells us the, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Notice he, he looks up to heaven. So he communicates with this man. This man obviously knows something's going on. And then Christ, in verse 34, he looks up to heaven and he models for us prayer in the midst of ministry. Christ is ministering to this, this person, this man, and he's now modeling for him prayer. He looks up to heaven. We saw that all the way back in Mark chapter 6 where Christ takes the loaves and he looks up to heaven, verse, 40, verse 41, says a blessing and then breaks the loaves. Here he does the same thing. He is ministering to this man and he looks up to heaven and he sighed. Now I think there's, again, this picture of communicating to this gentleman, whoever he might be, of what he's getting ready to do. Because you can certainly sigh but if you sigh, a, a great sigh, like the Greek word, you're going to notice it. There's a physical movement of the body that a person would have been able to see. Something's going on. This man looks up to heaven, takes a deep sigh. He's obviously communicating to this man, and he's communicating to this man that he's praying for him. He's praying about the situation. He's praying to someone this man would have probably known he's praying to God. And even now for us, Christ is interceding for us. As he was interceding for this man, Christ is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ always, eternally living, making intercession for us. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Meaning the only way we have the ability to be before the throne, to speak with God, is through the work of Christ. When God looks upon us, he looks upon his son. He sees his son who is interceding for us. When he, when he sees our sin, he then sees the merit of Christ 
interceding for us. In Christ here in this passage, he sighed. He, he, he visibly makes a, a visible evidence of both compassion for this man and angst for, over sin. We're going to see this sigh take place yet again here in the coming chapter of Mark 8. But here he sighs. Compassion for this man. Angst over sin. Unbelief. He sighs this, he has this sigh of compassion. And really the, the application for us is, does the brokenness of the world move us in the same way? Christ looks upon this man, has compassion upon him, sees the unbelief of, of many that are around him, which we'll see in Mark 8, and he sighs. He's moved by the unbelief of the world. He's moved by compassion for those in unbelief. Are we moved by this world that is around us, desperately needing the faith of Jesus Christ to help their unbelief, desperately needing Christ to do a miraculous work upon their heart to save them? This continual sign, this, this, this sign language uh, continues here in epaphatha. It's an Aramaic expression. I think there's two things for us here. One, it's a very difficult word to pronounce. E-P-H-P-H-A-T-H-A. Ephaphatha. Just saying it makes your mouth have to go in a very interesting way. And so if you can't hear and you say, hear somebody say Ephaphatha, you're going to say, this man's saying something. If you could read lips, which this man probably could, he could understand Christ is saying, be open. He's also said it in Aramaic, which made the disciples who could, re, who could hear what he's saying, remember, he's using an Aramaic word. That's not normal. That's unusual. But he's using it in a way to be able to convey to this man, and again, to the disciples, of what he's commanding that is to now happen. That is, be opened. Verse 35. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. This man, upon the command of Christ, upon the touch of Christ, has now been healed. He has the ability to hear. His first word that he could have heard might have been just the pronouncement of amazement by those that are around him. And he speaks plainly. There's no record of what he had spoken, but it may very well have been what many others had spoken. He went walking and leaping and praising God as the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4. Now I could imagine that as we would be studying this passage, especially if uh, you have much that is going on in your daily life, you may be thinking, what is the healing of a deaf man? What does the healing of a speech impaired man have to do with my life? I can talk just fine. I can hear you just great. I haven't seen anybody who couldn't hear now hear, who couldn't speak well now be able to speak clearly. What application does this really have for my life? This is a, this is a miracle, but I haven't seen this type of thing happen. If you really knew what was going on in my life, you would realize that I need... Lots bigger things than what's going on here. Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. 
strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I would agree with you this morning. I, I haven't seen any miracle like a deaf man being able to hear lately. But this passage stands as a reminder that we, we see something far greater than someone who can't hear now be able to hear. Because this passage stands as a reminder that of the wonder and truth that Christ has commanded that my eyes and that my ears that were stopped, that were closed, that were deaf, be opened. That this tongue who at one time only spoke that which was in opposition to God, that only was used for rebellion against God, that was only used as disobedient against God, has now been released to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle that is far greater than this man's ears being opened. And that's a miracle that he still does every day around this world, in this town, in this church. Because the healing hand that was placed upon this man to open his ears is the healing hand that was pierced for our soul's ability to hear. There's nothing greater than that. There's no more miraculous thing that could possibly happen. We see in Mark 7, they were astonished beyond belief and they proclaimed that he has done all things well. John 19 verse 30 says that Christ on the cross in his weakness, in his frailty, in his pain stated it is finished. The atoning work of Christ finished upon the cross for our sin. And how much more if in his weakness he could proclaim that in his risen glorified, ruling and reigning supreme nature in heaven at the right hand of the Father on the throne, can he still now say, I'm doing all things well. He has done all things well in the past. He's doing all things well now. And if you are here today and do not know Christ, that is a terrifying thing. Because the fact that Christ will do all things well means, Isaiah 35, that when he comes with vengeance to judge, he will do that well. And that if we have not repented and put our faith and trust in this Christ who has had his healing hand pierced for our soul's healing, then the fact that he is going to do all things well might very well terrify you. And yet for the believer, the fact that he has done all things well is our greatest delight. Because there's nothing that is greater than Christ's work on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. Notice verse 36, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And I would note for us this morning that 
They were not charged, but they proclaimed anyway. We have been charged. Are we proclaiming? We have ears that can hear. We have, we have tongues that can speak. And are we hearing the word of God and doing it? Are we speaking the truth in love to one another and the world? They were astonished beyond measure. How's our astonishment this morning? That he has done all things well for us, sufficiently, complete, for us. I think it's a, an interesting contrast here. And they were astonished beyond measure. Maybe this is the larger crowd. Maybe it was the they that brought this man. But it, it draws our attention to the increasing contrast between the people who are saying, all things he does well, and the Pharisees and scribes who have set about to take his life, destroy him. And it's a contrast that that every person falls on one side over the other. Either we're saying he has done all things well as those who have been saved by his healing hand, or we're also going, we're going to be saying, destroy him, I want nothing of him. The world falls into one of those two categories. There's really no other, no other categories you can place the world in. Either he's done all things well and you're delighting in it, or you're realizing that he has done things and you hate that. There's no middle ground. So what, what are we to say this morning? What are you to say this morning? What is, what is your testimony? Can you say that he has done all things well in your life? That he has made you that was once deaf, now able to hear, you that was once mute, able to speak? Or as Spurgeon puts it, he says it this way, no lips can tell the love of Christ to the heart until Christ himself shall speak within. Can you say that he has spoken within and made you alive? Go with me to Psalm 2. As we begin to close here, I want to turn our attention to this coming week and as it pertains to he has done all things well. This week will in many ways stand as a, a mark maybe for a long, long, long time for our nation. And there is going to be much temptation in the next two or three days to worry, to fear. There's going to be temptation to lose hope. And I want to read Psalm 2 and then by way of application apply it to Mark 7. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, let's cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Will you be able to say on Wednesday morning that Christ has done all things well? And your ability to say that or not say that depends upon whether or not your view of Christ is one that is ruling and reigning or one that is just a story in the Bible. Because if Christ is ruling and reigning in all that is in Psalm 2, then there is really no change for us as a believer. Oh yes, the circumstances will change. But the king that we serve and the citizenship that we have, a heavenly citizenship citizenship is not revoked on Wednesday morning. It does not change at all. Those who represent us in the White House have no control other than that which God gives them. Christ is the one who represents us before the throne. Not Hillary or Obama or Trump or any other man or woman that will come in history. Christ is the one who has done all things well. Christ is the one that intercedes for us. Do you see that Christ? He has done all things well. Can you say that? If you can't, then I would just encourage you, walk through the first seven chapters of Mark again in the next few days, before Wednesday morning even, and remind yourself of the work of Christ. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the majesty and supremacy and worth and value that is our God. And I believe that once you remind yourself of that, you will be left with no other phrase than the fact that he has done all things well and that he is doing all things well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to know that you are our God and King. What a joy it is to know that you rule and reign over us. What a joy it is to know that Christ, our King, intercedes for us. What a joy it is to know that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. What a joy it is to know, Father, that you do all things well. No mistakes, no slip-ups, no oops. All things done according to your perfect will. And you use even the sin of this world, the wretched sin of this world. You will use it for your glory and our good. We bow the knee to you, our Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.